0: In the latter part of this week I have been feeding the cattle, and the chooks and the ducks and uh, now I've come to feed the sheep. <laughs> Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer as we come. Oh God our Heavenly Father as we come before you this morning we ask that your Holy Spirit would be with us to guide us and direct us with regard to your word, that we may sit at your feet and learn what you have to say to us. Oh, be gracious to us, we pray, because we acknowledge that we don't deserve any of your goodness. We don't deserve the riches that we find in your word. We don't deserve the comfort that they bring. We don't deserve the hope that is there. And so we come with grateful hearts that you have condescended to speak to us in this word. And so we ask, Lord, that as we come and as it is explained, that it might find its place in our heart and in our minds and direct our living that we may glorify you in what we do. Because we ask it in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. I have chosen over these uh, three months that I have with you uh, to share with you some thoughts from the Sermon on the Mount. We read in Matthew 5, when Jesus saw the crowds, He went up on the mountain and after he sat down his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and began to teach them saying and then he goes on with that great message that we read in chapters 5 through to 7. They are precious verses, precious chapters in the New Testament because they are chapters where the Lord Jesus is speaking particularly to those who were close to him. Well, there were others present, and there were others, no doubt, who heard exactly what he had to say. But the words that he said were directed to those who were his. The discourse covers the whole of chapters 5, 6 and 7 of Matthew, and begins with the section generally known as the Beatitudes those eight sayings that describe the qualities of the character that belong to those who are members of God's kingdom. And these are followed by practical applications that demonstrate how those characteristics are at work in real life. And then finally, there is an encouragement to enter the kingdom, to enter by the narrow gate, the gate, that gate being faith in the Lord Jesus himself, the only way, the only truth, and the life. Now, in the weeks ahead, what I plan is that we should look at that beginning section of the sermon, the Beatitudes. Some regard them as rules for life, And they speak of living by the Sermon on the Mount. But they are not rules. Rather they are a description of life. That life which is the gift of the Holy Spirit to those who are born again. Most commentators regard them as being a description of the character that belongs to the true citizen of the kingdom. So the first thing we must take on board is that the Lord Jesus is not speaking here of several different categories of people. Some of whom are mourners, you know, they're always down at the mouth. And some who are merciful, they always see the best in other people and try to do the best for them. Or some who are peacemakers. No, he's not talking about people with different bents in their life. All these attributes spoken of in the Beatitudes belong in some degree to everyone who has been truly born again by the work of the Holy Spirit. And for this reason I think this passage is being an expansion, if you like, of what the Lord Jesus says in John 3 when he says to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Here in our passage, the Lord Jesus explains what it means in real life to be born again. What it means to have the life-giving Spirit which He gives at work in our lives. They are therefore to be distinguished from the gifts of the Spirit which he gives um, for us to edify the church if you like, to build up the church. These gifts that may not be possessed by everyone in the church. Paul makes this clear in Corinthians when he says to them, in 1 Corinthians 12, are not, uh, all are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? And all, have gift, not, and all do not have gifts of healing, do they? All do not speak in tongues, do they? All do not interpret, do they? We may or may not possess a particular gift. But that does not mean in the least that we are not Christians if we don't possess the gift. When Paul speaks of gifts of the Holy Spirit, he is speaking of those things given to the church for the benefit of the church and include everything from the preacher right down to the, 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 the humble and unseen hand that, puts the flowers in the church or a glass of water for the preacher under the pulpit or makes a cup of tea. All of those are included in the gifts that belong to the church, the fellowship of God's people and contribute to that fellowship. Some of the gifts may be natural gifts but they are no less gifts of the Holy Spirit as he uses them for the edification of the church. We are to thank God for all these gifts, but the gifts do not make you a Christian. Whereas these attributes spoken of here by the Lord Jesus and the Beatitudes, they are the characteristics that belong to the new birth. They are the characteristics that belong to the work that the Holy Spirit does in the born-again believer when he makes you alive. They are, if you like, the hallmark of the Holy Spirit's life-giving work in the Christian. For this reason we must not separate them as we do the gifts. If we do separate them, we end up with a bizarre result. If we say the poor in spirit inherit the kingdom of God, then we must also say that they cannot inherit the earth because that belongs to the gentle. And so we could go on. But as they stand, all these attributes and their results belong to every born-again believer. The citizen of the kingdom is all of these things, not necessarily all to the same degree, nor all in their perfection. But the born again citizen all find their desires, and this is important for us to understand, all find their desires fulfilled in these principles. They are the principles that the Holy Spirit is continually at work in us to achieve. Paul touches on this in Romans 8:28, when he says, "And we know that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God." And generally we stop there and we make a big mistake because that whole passage, 28 and 29, should be read together, in fact the whole thing, but those verses should be put together. Listen. And we know that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God, those who are called according to His purposes. The good that is in mind here is the good that belongs to the purposes of God in our lives. And this is, and Paul makes clear in the following verse when he says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. True conformity to the Lord Jesus is something that we will only achieve fully when we see him. When the Holy Spirit will perfect the work begun here, and we will finally be made like him when we see him but in the meantime the born again believer is like a spring garden as new seeds struggle towards the light as they grow sprouting new leaves as they and so it is we too we begin with a new birth And that new birth has longings, desires. And those longings and desires that are produced by the Holy Spirit in the heart are to be like the Lord Jesus. To be like Him who saved us. And so like that young plant sprouting from the ground and sprouting new leaves, so... These attributes develop in our lives as we cooperate with the Holy Spirit and the work that he's doing in our heart. And we are made, by degrees, more like the Lord Jesus Christ. But because we're imperfect, sometimes we find some growing vigorously and some seem to not grow at all. And we have to spend more time but the Holy Spirit is at work in you and he's at work in you to produce these things about which we're going to speak and by degrees he is bringing them about in your life if you are truly born again. Besides the word of God, these attributes are the Christians most potent weapon of evangelism and the most provocative source of persecution in this world. These, perhaps I should stop there and explain what I mean. I think there you yeah, have, as a, as a, I'm not talking about this church in particular, I'm talking about the church in general, has become besotted with methods. You've got to do it right, you've got to attract people, you know, you've got to, have things that people will come to see and participate in. But when I read the Word of God, the thing that really spoke louder than words, if you like, was the way that Christians lived. Behold how these Christians love one another. That was what the world saw. And that's why I say that these attributes, when they're at work in your heart, are one of the most potent weapons the church has in evangelism. There's one thing the world cannot gainsay is a godly life. And that accompanied with the word of God is the means that God uses to draw people to himself. Doesn't mean that we don't use methods, no, but we keep them in their right place. These attributes are therefore more important to us as the Lord's people than gifts. They are attributes that we need to cultivate, attributes that we should pray for in our lives and because they are the attributes that are so important to the Christian, they are attributes that the devil will do his utmost to frustrate in your life and distract you from cultivating them. Now in this regard it is worth noting here that the Lord Jesus description of the born again Christian, the true citizen of the kingdom, has to do with character and not organized activity. What matters as Christians, what matters is what we are. Even where the Lord Jesus speaks of activity, and he does a lot in this past, these three chapters, He does so quite extensively, in fact, in these three chapters. But all that activity springs from character. Good fruit always grows on good trees. You'll know them, he says, by their fruits. Thus, what we believe, and this is important for us, what we believe must have a defining influence over what we do and the way that we behave. Whether it be our private actions or our corporate decisions as a body of God's people, what we believe must have a defining influence over what we do. A man or woman may appear to us to be godly and upright but still be doing it from bad motives. We may not be adulterers outwardly but still be lustful. We may not steal but still be covetous. We may not be murderers but still be character assassins. And so we could go on So much of our activity in the gathered church can be done with superficial motives, sometimes even from the wrong motives. For instance, I can preach. I can stand up here and preach to you, not for the edification of the church, not in order that you may grow in your faith and love the Lord more and become more like Him, but I can stand here and preach in order that you may admire me. And think well of me. It's quite easy for us when we're up here to do things from the wrong motive and for what we do to be polluted by the wrong motives. But it's just as easy for you also to do the right things from the wrong motives. To have the right things, the right actions polluted by self-interest. Here is another lesson for us to learn as God's people. The exercise of our gifts in the church are actions that can be done not so as to, as a service to the Lord Jesus and for the benefit of the church and its quest to be Christ-like, but they can be done as service to self. I have not time to deal here with such things as good works from bad motives, but suffice to say that we are looking at life here from the way that God sees things, not the way we see them. And so the things that we're going to be dealing with over the next few weeks are intensely personal. It's not in the public arena. It has to do with my heart and with my personal walk with my Saviour and my Lord. The Beatitudes are dealing with us not as others see us, but as God sees us. They are, as a consequence, not things that I can pass judgment on in other people's lives. Because I cannot see into their heart as God does. I cannot judge their motives. And so these are not things that I can look around the church and pass judgment on you over because they are things that are so intensely personal that they are the things that God sees, the secret things of our heart. We are entering, therefore, into the real battlefield of Christian experience. They are words that help us to recognise our weaknesses and to make us aware of the goal of our redemption. But let's say this, though they are searching words and make us aware of our shortcomings, they are not words that are meant to send us on a guilt trip. You know, one of the easiest things to do for a pastor or a minister in the pulpit is to send his congregation on a guilt trip and then feel he has been successful in his preaching. Well, I want at the outset to say here now, here, and now, these are not words that are meant to send you on a guilt trip. Not at all. <laughs> you will feel guilty. It's some of the things, when you recognise that they're not growing in your heart as they ought to grow, But that drives you to your knees. It drives you to the Lord. It's not meant you to wallow like a a walrus in mud and um, you know have have a a, a good guilt trip. No, not at all. They're not meant for that. Now I want a brief introduction here to the Beatitudes themselves. That's that's an overall introduction to what we will be looking at over the weeks that lie ahead, but. Just a a short introduction to the Beatitudes themselves. The one characteristic that is common to all is the beginning of each one. They begin with the word makarios, which means literally, to be happy. Now some of you will have translations there that will have the word happy. Happy is the one. That's a literal translation Now, while this is a proper translation of the word, I am not sure that by itself it gives us the fullness intended by our Lord Jesus when he spoke these words. For instance, I cannot... It cannot mean just being happy or cheerful when it says happy and cheerful are those who mourn. There's got to be something more there than just being happy. If I said that, it would be advocating a kind of Christian schizophrenia. And that is clearly not the case. There is a deliberate contrast in these things, but not a contradiction. A deliberate contrast where the Lord says, happy is the man who mourns. Or happy is the person who is poor in spirit. There's a deliberate contrast, but not a contradiction. He is speaking of a happiness that has its as its foundation a deep uh, has its foundation rather in deep spiritual realities, things that are not subject to the outside influences of this world. The kind of happiness that is not subject to our state in this life, to our material security, how much money we have in the bank, or the state of our health, is that kind of happiness is fickle. It can disappear more quickly than it came. It can be stolen or damaged or lost. And most of us know this. And so we build fences to try and protect it. We carefully choose watertight investments to try and protect them. We take the best vitamin supplements that we can find so we can maintain our health. And when this kind of happiness is lost, it can bring great sorrow and even devastation to our lives. No, this is not the kind of happiness that the Lord Jesus is talking about here. Nor is he speaking of the person who is just naturally contented, naturally happy. People are not very ambitious in this life. They are not very covetous people. They are generally contented souls. They do not demand a lot from life. The Lord Jesus is not talking about such people What our Lord Jesus speaks of here is a happiness or a contentment that is independent of our material situation, our demeanour, or even our health. It is not dependent on these things at all, and it is not a natural contentment, but a supernatural contentment a contentment given by the Holy Spirit and thus a contentment that can only be known by those who are truly born again. It was the happiness of the Hebrew Christians who after being coming to faith in the Lord Jesus entered a great conflict of sufferings partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. They showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of their property, knowing that they had for themselves a better possession and a lasting one. There's a description of the born-again Christian in whose lives these things that we're going to talk about are at work. Here is a description of Christians who were truly... Happy, truly fortunate, truly blessed, because their anchor was in the right place. You see, blessed then I would suggest is a better translation than happy. Some would even put fortunate. This blessedness is almost an objective declaration. like that of a judge declaring a person guilty or not guilty. It refers to the state of the person possessing it rather than to their feelings or emotions. To this extent it can be a happiness happiness that is not felt, though when it is grasped by faith it can and does have a great effect on our mental and emotional well-being. It brings real contentment it brings real security to the heart. And so we can be sorrowing. We can be under tremendous tension. And yet there is in the heart an anchor that we can hold on to. An anchor that only the born again Christian can know. Therefore we can describe this happiness like a firm, as a firm anchor is to a ship in the midst of a hurricane. The storms can blow and stir up the sea and batter the ship terribly, but the ship remains firm and safe, secured to its anchor. I, in South Africa, when I was still single, I used to um, live next to a home and very good friends. I knew the boys very well. They were part of our young people's group. One of them I taught at high school as religious education teacher and coached as, as a, in the first 15 rugby and there were occasions when I would be late home in my digs that was next door and uh, they would lock the door and I couldn't get in. I didn't have a key so I'd go and tap on the window next door and they would open the window. I'd get in and I'd sleep on the floor between their beds, the two brothers. Well, the older brother went overseas and uh, trained in the ministry and he was back from overseas on holiday. And he was with his wife and his son and I happened to hear the news that there had been a tremendous accident. He'd been away speaking at a, at a group and his wife and his sister were on their way back with his sister's fiancée and a car came down the, the off-ramp of the freeway and ran head-on into them and both his wife and his sister were killed. I was in the home when he came home after hearing the news. And he walked into the home and hugged his mother. He came over to me and hugged me and he said, God is good. God is good with tears in his eyes. Heartbroken. God is good. Here was a man who had his anchor in the right place. He was a man who knew what it was to be blessed, to be fortunate and to be happy in the sense that the Lord Jesus means here. It's a happiness that finds its source in the promises of God and it is a happiness that has its roots in another sphere. Its roots are in the kingdom of heaven but it has a very powerful effect on the way that we live here and now. David talks of this happiness in Psalm 1. How blessed is the man, he says, who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. And of course, by law there he means word the Word of God. And because of this it is a happiness that is found in very different objects than that offered to us by the world around us. It is found in those things that reconcile us to God. How blessed in Psalm 32 is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. There's the happiness that the Lord is talking about in these things. It has a real consequence for us in this life and the hope we have for the next. In Psalm 4, you have put gladness in my heart more than their grain and new wine abound. More than when their grain and new wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Here is a man who has his anger in another life, in another sphere, and it affects the way that he lives in this life, the things that he loves, and the things that he pursues. Here is true blessedness the true joy of a heart that finds its source in our relationship to God and a deep personal confidence in Him. For example, even when we mourn, the source of our mourning is to be found not in the fact that our house was blown down or the car's blown up. The source of our mourning is to be found in our falling short of His expectations. Because he is the object of our love and our desire. There is no better expression of this morning than Paul's cry, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? I was in a group in in Melbourne. And uh, it was during the time when we were told that we were all have, must have good self-images. And uh, this little group of people who were gathered in a Bible study and they were he had, had the latest book on, on a good self-image. And while I was sitting there towards the end of the, the study, I thought, well, is this really right? Is this really right? Is a self-image so important to us? And I quoted to them this verse from Romans 7. O wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? It's exactly opposite to what the world teaches us that we should be. This is the image that Paul had of himself. And they were talking about Moses and how bad Moses, how self-bad image he had. You know, he wouldn't go back to Egypt, he couldn't talk, he couldn't face up to... uh, And I said, well, do you not think that it was Moses because he had a lot of wanted posters set up in Egypt? Moses wanted, you know. And that was the real reason, the word tells us that. And I said to them that night, what you really need is not a good self-image, but a good Christ-image. And that's what's being spoken of here is when we have a good Christ image, when He fills our horizon, when we understand Him for who He is and what He has done, when we aspire to be like Him and to have those same attributes in our hearts and our lives as He had, when we are consumed by those things, then we are truly blessed people for our heart is in the right place. and desiring the right things. This is something of what Peter speaks of when he says, and though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. And I hope that that will be the outcome of this time that we spend together. That we will... Rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. It is the genuineness of our love for him that is the great motivating factor of the Christian life. And the life given in the new birth is life which finds its true blessedness in the perfections of God's character. Blessed is the person whose life is anchored there. It is a joy that only belongs to those who are his by faith, a faith that expresses itself in the desire to be like him. If you love me, he said, you will keep my commandments. I want us to pray that the Holy Spirit will let us join the disciples as they sat around the Lord Jesus and looked into his face and felt the full impact of his words as they looked him eye to eye, as his words brought light into their hearts and began to reveal to them their true selves. And finally I want to close with a quotation from D.A. Carson's book, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. He says, The more I read these three chapters, Matthew 5, 6 and 7, the more I am both drawn to them, and shamed by them. Their brilliant light draws me like a moth to a spotlight, but the light is so bright that it sears and burns. When we see the truth of these eight principles, there is no room left for forms of piety which are nothing more than a veneer and a sham. True godliness True godliness in the heart is the desired goal. And so inherent in the new birth is the recognition of the Lord Jesus' perfection and a longing to be like Him. It is that longing and desire to achieve Christ-likeness that differentiates the Christian from the world, that makes them the salt of the earth and a light that cannot be hid and the target of the world's vindictiveness. Let us pray. Oh God, our Heavenly Father, be gracious to us, we pray. And give us these things that we do not deserve. Give us the desire to be like your Son. the aspirations that find their fulfilment in Him so that He may become the pinnacle of our desires because we ask it in His name and for His glory. Amen.